This is the Classical Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. This is Greg Soden. When I was reading Dinty W. Moore's The Mindful Writer, I noticed an ad for other books from Wisdom Publications in the back of the book. One ad in particular popped out at me. It was for a novel called Sid, and it was a modern-day retelling of the life of Shakyamuni Buddha, written by Zen master and sculptor Anita Feng. The caption in the ad, which reads, What would the Buddha's life look like if he lived today? Stood out to me. I looked her up. I invited Anita Feng on the podcast, and I really enjoyed her book, which we talk about at length in this episode. I hope you will consider reading this beautiful short novel, which was published in 2015, the year Anita Feng received final Dharma transmission as a Zen master. Anita Feng, Zen master Zhang Ji, serves as the guiding teacher at Blue Heron Zen Community in Seattle, Washington. She has practiced Zen in the lineage of Zen master Song San since 1976. In the late 70s, she lived and studied intensively with Zen master Song San at the Providence Zen Center, and she received Inca from Zen Master Jibong in 2008 and received final transmission as a Zen Master in 2015. I spoke to her via Skype from Washington State. Without further delay, I bring you my conversation with Anita Feng. Welcome to the Classical Ideas Podcast. I'm here today with Anita Feng. Um, Anita, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I'm curious if you can introduce yourself um, and some details I'd be curious about are your sangha, your dharma name, your writing, your art, anything that springs to mind. Well, several things spring to mind right away. Uh, I could just say a, a little bit by way of introduction uh, my Dharma name is Jungji, and this is a Korean name because I'm in the, I teach Zen in the Korean Zen lineage. And the way I translate that name means no wisdom. I love so, that. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this, this points to an essential core of Zen Buddhism, and we can talk about that later. Um, uh, you know, my Sangha in Seattle is, uh, you know, a, a vibrant community of about, we have about 50 members, and we also have a small residential Zen training opportunity. So we have five residents who live there and train there and also go to their daily jobs or school and things like that. Uh, the lineage comes from a Korean masters, Zen master Sung San. And he was, came in, that, uh, in a fairly early wave of teachers from the East. He came in the early 70s. And can you also talk a little bit about your writing and your art? Yeah, sure. Uh, that's been a part of my life from the beginning. I'm, I, I'm convinced that before I could talk, I was uh, thinking about art. I must have been because I grew up in a household of artists uh, and creative types. So um, I began writing with some passion in elementary school. You know, there's that stage in fifth grade when they uh, ask you to take up job shadowing and, or, or some grade similar to that. And they say, just, just decide right now what you're going to be <laughs> when you grow up and, and go find somebody who does that and, and shadow them. So I, I, you know, raised my hand promptly and said, oh, I'm going to be a poet. And they said, no, 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 you can't do that. You have to do something more practical. But I was always very stubborn, and so I, I, I um, you know, found a poet. Um, 
my my mother was an artist and that was a huge influence on both my artwork and also my Zen training. Just to give you a really short example, uh, she did very fine pen and ink drawings and she would spend hours and hours and hours, very detailed, very meticulous, all no pen uh, pencil marks to begin with, uh, pen and ink only. So people would ask her, what happens if you make a mistake? First thing she says is, I never make any mistakes. <laughs> and then she would just wait, you know, just wait for whatever happened next. And then finally, you know, they'd just be flummoxed and she'd say, well, whatever happens, I incorporated into my art. Excellent. Yeah. And I have I have a painting in my house that that reminds me of where it's a giant vase of flowers and the guy that I bought the painting from turned the painting over so the flowers are facing upside down and he said you see that in the background there that I painted over that's a window in a painting that I almost destroyed so I love that um, and you are a Raku sculptor aren't you mm-hmm, mm-hmm. excellent what is what is that can you talk about your sculpting sure sure. Uh, I've been a working ceramic artist for 45 years, really my whole adult life. And, uh, you know, what I'm working on now in Raku sculpture is um, I'm making contemporary Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Uh, That's just to talk about the subject of what I'm making. Uh, One of the things that inspired me to do that for my day job is that I wanted to have a Buddha for my home altar. You get online and they all look the same. Yeah. (laughs) They all have uh, the same expression, the same, uh, you know, just generally kind of mass produced figures. And I thought, well, wait a minute. First of all, um, what is that teaching us about enlightenment and awakening? Does it, does it all look the same? Hmm. <laughs> Are these human beings that we're talking about or some kind of, um, you know, just completely extraneous iconography that has no bearing on real life? Um, so anyway, that's what got me doing work in that direction. And then the Raku process, just to say a word about that, um, it, it's, a, it's a very dramatic firing process. So for those, for anyone who has ever done any work in clay, the usual procedure is you make something, you let it dry, you fire it in an electric or gas kiln, and you put glazes on it, and then you fire it again, and it takes a long time, and it cools off, you open up the kiln, and you're done. With Raku, this second firing, you, you use a very fast firing process, then you open up the kiln when it's red hot and the figures are just glowing with molten glazes. And you, with iron tongs, you lift out the pieces right then and there and plunge them into a metal bin that's filled with combustible materials like sawdust or wood, you know, just different things. I've, by the way, I've discovered that my favorite combustible material is junk mail. Oh, fantastic. <laughs> it, <laughs> Not only is it a great recycling process, but there are certain dyes in these um, in the junk mail that just give very vibrant colors. So anyway, in that in that process, you know, you you put a molten hot pot into a, a a bin with combustibles. It bursts into flame, and you slam a lid on it, which then starves the oxygen out of the environment. By that process, you get these vibrant spontaneous completely unpredictable colors it's really amazing i've spent so much time on your website lately on your store looking at all of your sculptures and i would encourage everybody to go and find these because they are just astonishing and gorgeous um thank thank you for telling me about that so you are a member of a korean zen lineage called Mm -hmm. soen right yeah, I mean, you know, because we live in the West and the the first time Zen came over to this country, everybody called it Zen. We just go along and call it Zen, too. Although uh, Zen is the Japanese word sure. for this practice. Son is the Korean word. 
Um, but they mean the same thing. Okay. So, yeah. So how does uh, Soen vary from Soto and Rinzai? Um, you know what I like to say about that kind of question when I hear it is in, in a way you can think about it as uh, all these different traditions are like ice cream and they each have a different flavor. Yeah. You know? uh, so that uh, part of that is a, a cultural manifestation. When you think about Soto and Rinzai, you know, if people aren't aware, Soto and Rinzai are both Japanese styles of Zen, but they come out of China. China is the birthplace of, of Zen. And there became these, these um, before Zen even entered into Japan, it went to Korea first. A lot of developments uh, from China went in that geological direction. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, to compare Korean Zen to Japanese Soto and Rinzai, while the fu fundamental practice is the same, there's a lot of sitting. Mm -hmm. There's a, a you know a, a, an emphasis on the Buddha's words of uh, all beings are capable of awakening, everyone without exception is capable of awakening. Uh, we, whether it's Soto, Rinzai, or Korean Zen, we take this literally and really mirror the Buddha's practice from when he was a young man and set off to find the truth. However, um, you know, that as I was saying about these flavors, Soto is a style where they don't work with koans. Mm -hmm. It's called uh, silent illumination is a, a phrase that's used to describe. Rinzai, they work with koans. And, uh, you know, that's a key feature in their practice. For Korean Zen, we do both. Interesting. But the, yeah, but the way we work with koans is a little bit different than the way with than different from the way Rinzai practitioners do it. Excellent. So in your view, what is the purpose of Zen? Because I've heard varying answers on this. Like some people have a goalless practice. Um, and then there's also Satori, which is sudden enlightenment. So what is the purpose of Zen to you? Yeah. Uh, I, I like to talk about it in terms of uh, our mission statement. <laughs> sure. And, and, and as Zen Buddhists. And it, it, it's two part. One is to awaken, to, and the second part is to help others. So to awaken, if, um, you know, to this other answer that you were given at some point about goallessness, um, is also pertinent to this goalless goal. Uh, we, we, <laughs> we call it unwilled intention. So the, the idea behind this is that if you are striving for something like, for example, enlightenment, then already you've set up a paradigm that it's somewhere else. Mm -hmm. I'm here and enlightenment's over there. And that's a problem. You know, that reminds me of the first line in the Tao Te Ching where you say Tao called Tao is not Tao. Exactly. Or Wu Wei, where you try to go against something and you won't reach it. Is that, you know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and, and it, it, it should be understood that, uh, you know, Zen, as it came to China, really married with Taoism. And, yeah. Go so ahead. those two together, Buddhism, Taoism, and throw in a little Confucianism for good measure, and you have Zen. Fantastic. So you are a teacher of Zen. Yeah. And you have been um, ordained, and I know that you have some explanations about that um, that you mentioned. So um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that process, what your training was like leading up to um, being ordained, and what your Dharma transmission ceremony was like, things like that. Sure, sure. Well, uh, first of all, I, um, you know, I had no intention or ambition by any means to become a teacher. I just, I just... It, it, the practice resonated with me 
from the first time that I heard about it, and I just wanted to do it. Um, so my training began when I was living in Maine. Um, I had my studio and, and doing my usual, my, you know, just my life, and I came across this very now very famous book on Zen called Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. Mm-hmm. I just thought, oh, that makes so much sense. So I just sold my house, got rid of all my belongings, and went to the nearest Zen master. This was in 1976. And the nearest Zen master happened to be Zen master Sung San, this Korean master, who was my first teacher. So I studied intensively with him. I didn't do any shopping. (laughs) I just went for the nearest one. (laughs) Proximity effect. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, in those days there weren't very many Zen masters anyway so that, that kind of made sense um, so I just continued my training intensively with this Zen master uh, after a period of time I left to raise a family and you know I, I just wanted to pull away from the pressure cooker of that kind of residential training so I just practiced on my own for 15 years. Then I came back. By that time, I was living in Seattle and uh, came back to practice with the local Sangha. Then I was training with my most recent teacher, Zen Master Ji Bong, also in the Korean lineage, the same teacher. We had the same root teacher. So at that point, I started training to become a teacher myself. Uh, And there is a a rigorous um, process because we work with koans. There's a, a, you know, there are a number of koans to to explore and um, clarify in order to be considered suitable for teaching. Also, you know, I I must have, um, I think if, if I were to add up the number of retreat days that I did, uh, that I have done, you know, that where you're just sitting from really early in the morning to late at night, probably more than a year of my life has been spent in retreat meditation. So a lot of days. So how did you, dis- um, when did you become ordained? Oh, right. About that word. Well, there is no ordination in our, in our particular school. So there are no monks or nuns, so the, the word ordained just didn't quite suit us. Uh, I, there, there are two stages to becoming a full-fledged teacher. Um, in our school, uh, the title is uh, Jido Popsa, is the first stage, and this means teach, just essentially teacher. In, in Japanese, the equivalent would be sens- sensei. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's certain, you know, there's a ceremony for that when that happened. Uh, For me, that was, um, well, I forget, it was a while ago. (laughs) Uh, But there's a a public ceremony. And one of the interesting features of the ceremony is that there the public challenges the, the new teacher, koan style, you know, to ask a question, and just see how, you know, First of all, it's not so much about whether it's considered to be a right answer or a wrong answer, but how how do I comport myself? Do I believe in myself? Mm-hmm. Am I am I clear? Am I confused? You know, so that there's a lot of stuff going on. Um, pretty pretty daunting. <laughs> it does sound scary. <laughs> and then to train to become a Zen master several years later. Uh, you know, there's a lot more koans to koans to work with, and then after that, my guiding teacher, Zen Master Ji Bong, uh, requested that I go to be tested by other Zen masters in other traditions. So go completely out of school, and meet up with different masters and and just let them have at me and see what happens. That is so rigorous. It sounds so fascinating and also. Utterly terrifying. <laughs> I found it really, really interesting. I learned so much uh, when that when it came time for me to face that process. I asked if I could, 
you know, request that I meet with one, at least one woman Zen master, American mm-hmm. woman Zen master, because I, I feel like uh, although there are a number of women teachers in Zen now, it's still a relatively new phenomenon. And uh, you know, I wanted to learn about that. So what do you think are some of the most often heard misconceptions about Zen in America? Um, I, I, I guess one would be the misconception that we are navel gazers, that we, we are escapists. We're just going off and um, uh, excusing ourselves from the real, in quotes, the real world. And that I, I find very interesting because, if anything, it's completely the opposite. So the whole process of meditation is training our minds and our hearts to be fully present in what is actually real. The, the, the weird thing about that is that most of the time we're going about our daily lives totally in our heads completely driven by distraction mm-hmm. and um, you know, we miss reality. I think that one of the first motivating factors for me to take up meditation is that I did not want to miss my life. <laughs> you know, I wanted to be here for it. So that's one misconception. Another one is that, uh, uh, let's see, that, um, oh, what was I going to say about that? That there, I I guess that that when you have some awakening experience or you have a certain amount of meditation under your belt, then you're going to be fine. You're not going to have any problems anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have some bad news to report. <laughs> Life still happens. You know, things, all kinds of things happen. The difference is that one is less driven by emotions and catastrophes. One is not so much controlled by one's emotions. We feel everything that anybody would feel. And so like when something bad happens, you mm-hmm. have you have more of an ability to kind of handle that situation uh, in the present instead of carrying it with you. You're able to deal with it quicker, it seems like. It's, that's kind of how it feels to me. Is that mm-hmm. I'm 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 more able to let things um, die or let things uh, calmly pass instead of carrying it with me for hours and hours throughout my day and mm-hmm. negatively impacting many people in my path in the meantime. Very well said. That's exactly it. Yeah, and you know we talk about in Zen or in Buddhism itself this this problem of cause and effect of you know something bad happens maybe as to you as a child and then it just keeps happening um so it's cutting that chain of uh reactive behaviors is what it's all about and and it really gives you ownership over your own actions and your own life yeah yeah totally so i want to spend some time talking about your book which i have recently read called sid so you wrote a novel called sid and mm-hmm. where you offer a telling of the life of the buddha as well as a modern day telling mirroring the buddha through the life of a man named sid so what was the motivation for writing the book um mm-hmm. in the first my first question when was what was the motivation for writing this book um I think it's kind of like the motivation that I had for my sculpture work. They're really very closely related. Uh, You know, I think that artists, in a way, are, um, can serve as uh, a leadership role in change. You know, in in terms of uh, making adjustments as a, this, thousands-year-old practice goes from country to country to country. It, it seems a requirement of, of that practice to make it relevant and uh, real for who we are now. There's another thing that motivated me to write this book, which is to rewrite the old story. And again, there's a little bit of um, 
you know, uh, I don't know, artistic license taken here, because if we think about history, history by definition is fiction by its selective rendering of events and or partially or even misremembered events of the past. So there's some very interesting telltale signs that the history of someone who very likely lived at some point is a, is a bit off. Uh, a couple of things. One is the missing part of women mm-hmm. in the story, uh, as is so common in histories around the world. Women are given short shrift. They are given uh, supporting roles only, if that. And quite often, they are simply killed off at the beginning of the story. Uh, yeah. My favorite thing about the the Siddhartha sections is the bringing of, to the forefront of Yashodara and Avalokitesvara, um, the female characters in the story. So that was actually, that's why I opened the book here. I was like thinking like, oh yeah, what was, how, how do I say Avalokitesvara again? So I really wanted to compliment you on bringing those characters to the forefront um, as well. Thank you. Thank you. Another thing that I thought was pretty interesting for those who have read about the life of Siddhartha, uh, when he marries his wife, Yashodra, they have a son, Rahula. And if you read any religious text that tells the story, they say the definition of that name, Rahula, means fettered, or, you know, uh, a fettered one. And I'm a parent, I have children, no parent that I have ever met would name their child Fetter. <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know. So clearly, this is a, a story that's written by monks that had a certain agenda p- to present. So I did some research. I did a lot of research, and I discovered that in um, you know a couple of books written by linguistic scholars of of, of um, that part of the world, they discovered that Rahula is actually a diminutive form of Rahu, which was a a, a a name that would have been given in a celebratory fashion, as was done in that day, for some astrological event. That makes totally me so different. happy. That makes me so happy for Rahula, the historical Rahula, instead of everybody. And I'm going to use that in my explanations in the future with my students as well, because that fetter or that ball and chain description is so commonly used for Siddhartha's child. And then my 18 year old students find that to be horribly offensive. I'm with them. I'm with them entirely. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's worth one of the joys of research is that you just don't take whatever is dished out as as the truth necessarily. You you know you really do your homework and you find out. Um, well, there's some there's some other there's some other information here that needs to come to the foreground. So how does Sid inspire your own teaching? Yeah, I think if if Zen as a as a practice of presence of mind is to thrive and grow and to help people awaken it has to be a reflection of who we are in this you know in this world in this time Uh, i draw on my own life you know my own insecurities and 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 um doubts and stages of life that are very common to all of us you know, the, say, you know the, a rebellious phase where you just want to cast off everything that your parents stood for. I mean, if that isn't the Siddhartha story in a nutshell, what is? Uh, you know, there's something very noble and, and wonderful in a way for a young person to inquire for themselves. And what's so interesting about the way that you wrote the book is you have alternating chapter structure where you have the ancient story and then a modern day retelling. And the modern day retelling does such a nice job of mirroring the Buddha's life in the modern world that the Buddha, the historical Buddha, then becomes real in the here and now instead of some ancient figure in a palace in Nepal. Right. Well, I'm glad to hear that. That's my intention. Yeah. So you write the book and it takes place at Harvard. 
And the depictions of Harvard are so vivid. So did you go there and sit along the Charles River and on Harvard (laughs) Square to write the book? (laughs) No, but I did live in Cambridge when I was young. And my older daughter lived in Cambridge for a number of years. So I've been in and out of that environment at at different times in my life. And if you know, I don't know if if people know very much about this, this city of Cambridge. There are more universities per square foot or something there than anywhere else in this country. And the, I, you know, at least when I was there, the general population is just that we were all under 30. We were, you know, a city of young people bent on learning and, uh, you know, becoming something new. So it just seemed a fitting place to put this story. And also I thought about, you know, okay, so what's the contemporary version? What, what could I use as a contemporary father figure? Uh, Siddhartha, in, in ancient times, he grew up in a house of, uh, you know, of rulers who had enormous privilege. And, and I didn't want to just have the modern day Sid being raised in a wealthy family. I, I, I thought, well, um, you know, the, here's Harvard. This is a kind of, I, it's Ivy League. It's, it's, it's super special, uh, way up there in the ranks of academia. And I picked that also because I grew up in a family of professors. So I know that I, I feel really comfortable and familiar with that mindset. Sure. Yeah. And so the book moves very quickly through life. Um, you're mm. very spare in your prose, which is really uh, interesting considering uh, we've already talked about the declining attention span of people in the world. Um, so this is an accessible book for anybody, even with a lot, very, very little spare time on their hands. So the book is fast. Did you cut a lot or were you spare with your prose from the beginning of the writing process? Spare with my prose from the beginning of the writing process. I come to writing with the background of a poet. So I, I, I really do operate under the principle of less is more. Yeah, creating a um, space around a narrative so that the reader can participate with their own imagination. You know, fill in the spaces with their own lives. Excellent. And so you present the Buddha um, through Sid in a very modern way. Um, In this case, a young man who grows up through his life. And he experiences a lot of grasping in the story that seeking to throw off his shackles, um, to get out into the world, to rebel, as you mentioned a moment ago. Do you see this grasping as sort of endemic to our society? I think it's endemic to human nature. Absolutely. There's a a book that came out recently uh, called Why Buddhism is True. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, Robert Wright. Yeah, yeah. So he came out here and gave a talk, and and I had the chance to meet him, and just discuss things with him a little bit. And it was very interesting. You know, what he says about uh, human beings as animals that are designed to essentially be unhappy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, which is fascinating when you think of the Buddha's main teaching, the first noble truth is that life is marked by suffering. Yes, and so the, the, the why is that? It's not because we're we're bad or because we are uh, you know um, flawed in any way whatsoever. It's just that as animal creatures, uh, it's hardwired into us to um, be able to protect and uh, you know to fight for what we need and things like that. So there's a um, there's something about grasping that's just in our nature. However, the whole piece that is ludicrous is that our basic needs are met for a great many of us. Yeah. There's really no need. But that, that um, you know, animalistic, hardwired aspect is still there. Hence the need for the training. My favorite moment in the book is not a moment of grasping, but it is actually a moment of complete focus and enlightenment, I would almost argue. So the line in the book is when Sid is holding his child, and then you wrote, a momentary flash of sheer perfection. 
and I have a four-year-old right now. And she's a delightful young lady. And I had a moment that day after reading that line that I kind of, I cried a little bit when it happened because I felt like I was Sid in that book. That is so lovely to hear that. And and you are absolutely right. That is exactly what I meant to convey. So is that enlightenment? Is, are these ordinary moments that we can experience if we look for them or, or if we're paying attention, is this enlightenment in our daily lives? That is the, the single most important question. And the answer is yes, unequivocally. So enlightenment means we say waking up this is not about you know having you know fireworks or um jumping out of your skin or magic or anything it's about this the the real deeper truer magic of presence presence it's so magical and important um yeah and there's so much to say about that but i almost feel like if everybody who listens to this just looks for those moments a little harder that you'll see that they're already there and that you miss them 95% of the time. <laughs> yeah. One, one thing I think that I would add to that is that even if we miss it 95% of the time, it's okay. As soon as we notice it, that's actually a wonderful thing because we notice it, we know then to come back. Beautifully stated. So, um, what is the what are the importance of the animals in the book? I noticed that you have these tiny poems spread yeah. throughout, and I'm hoping yeah. if you can just explain to me as a reader what I may be missing with the animal poems. Okay, you know I think of them a little bit as uh, those Shakespearean minor characters offering their commentaries. <laughs> I love it. We just finished reading Othello in my tenth grade English classes. Okay, so you know the. There, uh, I think we, as human beings, we think of ourselves as really important and very big. <laughs> yeah. And, and and so, okay, I've thrown in uh, a bear, and the the two main animals are well. There's there's a crow, a rabbit, and crow. And I I have to say, really, you know, you asked about the genesis of this book, and it began with rabbit and crow long before there was any idea of Sid and Siddhartha, there was a rabbit and crow. And and just to share this with you for a moment, uh, I was meeting up with an artist friend for tea one day in Seattle, and we decided to do an ex- art experiment, a collaborative experiment. So we decided we would flip a coin. Whoever got heads would begin a conversation that would be conducted in poetry and in art, back and forth. Every two weeks, we would respond to what the other person said. No dialogue around it, no rules. Um, We would just do this. So we did this for two years. Oh, wow. And so my friend, Linda, who is the artist in this book, um, she got heads. She went for a walk, and she saw a rabbit being eaten, a dead rabbit being eaten by a crow. And we were off and running. Siddhartha was, you know, Sid and Siddhartha was already being told. I love it when books incorporate artistic pieces. Um, My favorite translation of the Tao Te Ching is by the translators Stephen Addis and Stanley Lombardo. Um, And Stanley Lombardo is in the Korean Zen tradition as well. I know him. I know him well. And their translation has these amazing traditional calligraphy paintings by Stephen Addis that I absolutely love. So that is actually one of my favorite features about your book is that um, my favorite translation of the Tao Te Ching has art, and this book has art, and art just makes novels better. So <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I was so pleased. I couldn't tell you how thrilled I was that I had like paintings to look at inside the book as well. So thank you for that as well. And my best to your friend, um, the painter who collaborated with you, uh, Linda, in the book. I'll pass it on. Thank yeah. you. So um, let's kind of bring our, our chat here to uh, a landing over the next little bit. Um, what are some of your future personal goals in your life based on Zen teaching? 
Oh, I, I think I would have to do a broad stroke kind of answer for that. I, uh, I see my work as a teacher is as one of essentially being a student of the unknown. And it, I guess my primary goal is to not lose sight of that. Does this, res- does this term, the don't know mind, does that resonate with you in your, in your way of thinking too? That is our core teaching. Our core practice, yeah. Uh, before thinking mind, uh, you know, a spacious mind. There are a lot of different ways that it's phrased, but um, uh, I see this as an endlessly uh, rejuvenating adventure, the adventure of don't know mind. <laughs> it's really amazing, and my students love don't know mind. That's something that anybody can grasp. It's like I'm going into something new today. Go into it not knowing what you're going to get and what you're going to experience, and you will experience more. Well, that is, that's what got me started in Zen at the beginning when I read Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Mm-hmm. Even just the title of that book, I, I just thought, oh, okay, this is what it means to be an artist of one's own life. And as an artist, you can go into art each new day, and you can... It, it helps you to break out of the, oh, I'm an artist, I know what I'm doing. Like, it, it keeps you <laughs> open to experimentation, I would imagine, right? Right. I, I think any artist worth their salt would have to say the opposite. Oh, I'm an artist, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I Love have that. no idea. <laughs> it's like teaching. I walk out of here a failure every single day. <laughs> so That's I'm, wonderful. So I know you've mentioned Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind. Are there any mm-hmm. other books that you would recommend for people interested in Buddhism or Zen? Uh, what would you recommend for all people to check out? Uh, you know, I, I think that people might really enjoy my root teacher's first book, Zen Master Sung San's book called Dropping Ashes on the Buddha. This is a really ex- accessible um, book that's full of colorful stories and very interesting, dynamic, um, mystifying exchanges that the master has with his students. Um, I, I think it's, you know, each chapter is very short and, um, you know, can raise a lot of questions. And it also teaches some fundamental things about Zen and Buddhism. Um, I think that, let's see, uh, the, depending on a person's proclivities, if someone is really interested in history and would like a a kind of broader scope um, view of Buddhism, there is a book called Buddha. um, Oh, dear. Um, She's written a number of books on religion. Karen Armstrong. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was a really good book. Very well researched and I agreed. I read that on a plane two months ago to go into Washington, D.C., and I read it in one flight. So it's a two-and-a-half-hour <laughs> two flight, and I read the book. So Buddha by Karen Armstrong is really, really good. Well, you must be a really fast reader. <laughs> Sometimes I'm able to knock something out pretty quick, um, usually very slow. Yeah. Um, so who are some of your—do you have any role models, like spiritual role models in the world that you think that people should also check out, or did we kind of already cover that? Um, well, in part, we did. I, you know, I there. I can refer right away to my own teachers, um, but um, in addition to them, uh, I actually like to break out of the mold of traditions in this respect, and and uh, you know, kind of in in company with my comments about what it means to be a teacher. I think that if you can look at your children really closely, you may find that they are the closest, handiest teachers of all. I agree. Just to look at those bright, shiny eyes and how quickly they do let go of grasping. They do let go of karma. Um, you know, uh, as, a, as, an, as a writer, I often get a lot of inspiration from fictional characters. I don't really know. I have very, I have very few boundaries in terms of where I, you know, I uh, find my teachers. And I guess I would encourage that above all, that if someone is looking for a keen-eyed teacher, just step out your front door, keep your eyes peeled. What are a couple of your favorite novels? 
Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I, you know, I go through phases. Mm-hmm. And when I was a teenager, I just went through Russian literature entirely, just read everything. Uh, I read War and Peace twice before it was 16. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> but that doesn't quite do it for me now. Uh, I, uh, huh. My favorite two yeah. Russian pieces are The Death of Ivan Ilyich and The Master and Margarita. Oh, I love that. I read that one twice, too. That was great. And um, I guess I could say something about the kind of books that I like. I These days, I really enjoy novels in general because I, I, I find nonfiction to be uh, more limited, which is an odd thing in a way because it, there's a topic and there's an agenda and there's some kind of uh, dry summary generally. I just find much more vitality and three-dimensionality in in fiction. So you are on a podcast right now about all religions in the world. And so why do you think it's important for people to learn about multiple religions and not just the one that they may practice? I think it's critical. I think it's critical. Again, we have to step outside of our mental front door our uh, habitual frame of reference door. Uh, If we are to understand each other, if we are to appreciate other cultures, other worlds, other, other countries, other religions, we have to know what we're talking about. There's so much um, uh, prejudice and misconception about other religions that just gets perpetuated. Mm-hmm. So it's our responsibility. I think, I personally, I feel that, that all high schools should offer a course like you do uh, in, in religions. Um, it, it's, it's vitally important. And if it does, the younger it starts, the more likely we're to save this planet from self-destructing. That's how important I feel it is. We've had a lot of really pretty beautiful moments in this conversation, and I'm so grateful to you for spending part of your afternoon with me today, talking about your work, talking about your practice, talking about what inspires you. And I'm wondering if you can tell people where to check out your amazing artwork uh, and your book if they are so inclined. Sure. Thank you. Um, Probably the easiest thing is to go to my personal webpage, anitafang.com. And there's, there's some samples of my sculpture work and also about my books. I have three books out. And then my work as a Zen teacher. There are links to more information on, on that site. But uh, that's it. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for this wonderful work that you're doing. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Okay, we're done. (laughs) Pretty cool, huh? Yeah, that's great. You you do a really good job. You you seem to be a natural at this. I love it. I I just, like, have a really, really good time with this. Um, Hey, I wanted to show you something before we go. So my students have been painting Bodhidharmas. (laughs) I love it. Yeah. I love it. So there's one. This is uh, this is a really cool one, but I want to show you the creepy one. that I. This is my favorite one. You ready? My Cambodian refugee student painted this. Oh, my goodness. That it, is so beautiful. Isn't that amazing? Oh, I love it. I do, too. Yeah, so I've got, a, I've got 25 Bodhidharma paintings hanging up in my classroom right now. That is just amazing. Yep, and he really? uh, he fl- he he and his fam his family left on a boat in the middle of the night uh, several mm-hmm. years back, and he came to the U.S. with no English, and now he was in a religions class, and he painted me this fantastic Bodhidharma, and I was like, "You should take that home. That is incredible." He's like, "No, I want you to have it." So he gave me this amazing gift. You know so. that that it, you could you could feel the experience of his life in that. Absolutely. So wow. I I just thought you would appreciate that as oh. a uh, as an artist and as a Zen teacher. 
Um, okay, cool. So my next step is I'm going to do a little intro and I'm going to write up some stuff. And it's basically going to be like NPR where Terry Gross will introduce a guest, so to speak, at the beginning of an episode. I'm going to tie in some mm-hmm. music. I'm going to edit it all together. I'm going to put the interview in there. I'm going to do a little outro. And then um, it'll be a fully fleshed out piece of work. So that's my next step. Great. Great. Wonderful. <laughs> Thanks. So this has been I, a, a great hour. So I'm really, really thankful to you. Oh, thank you. Much appreciated. <laughs> yes. Um, Take care. Do you ever do, really quick, do you ever do, uh, do you travel to lead retreats ever? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, I'm on the board of, I'm on the board of the, of a Buddhist Sangha here in Columbia, Missouri. So maybe we'll see about getting you up for a treats, retreat sometime. That would be great. What's the what's the retreat set place that you go to? It's called Show Me Dharma. Uh huh. Show a, me. Show me, as in the Show Me State. Oh, okay. Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Show Me Dharma. Um, <laughs> so, um, actually, I'm not on the board yet, but I think that I'm going to be with the upcoming elections. So, um, they're always asking, like, "Hey, who are you talking to for your podcast? Like, do you think there would be any good retreat people?" So, I was just curious if you are open to doing things like that. Yeah, sure, sure. I enjoy it. Yeah. Cool. And I'm planning on going to Seattle next summer with my wife. She's running a race there. So uh, before I go, I'll write to you a couple weeks in advance, and I'll see what your sit schedule is. And would it be okay if I came and sat with you sometime? Of course. That would be really nice. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, you've been so grateful with your time, so I'm going to let you go and get on with your day, and we will uh, talk soon. Okay. Thanks a lot. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. The Classical Ideas Podcast is written and performed by me, Greg Soden. Original music is composed and performed by Derek Stradwick. His music can be found at www.wearewarmmusic.com. Thanks for listening.